You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Romans 5, uh, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and we do require your grace, Father, uh, should we profit from this reading. Father, as we read these words, we recognize immediately that they're very dense. And there are many things, Father, that elude us as we read Uh, We wonder, what did we just read? Uh, Father, we know that you've not given us your word to confuse us, but you've given us your word to instruct us. Uh, But passages like these remind us, Father, that we need your grace should we understand. So, Father, we ask that you would give us that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Last week we began plowing through really, I think, what arguably is, uh, as I suggested in my prayer, a difficult passage of Scripture. Do do all agree with that? Uh, I can tell you in preparing for this morning, uh, um, I agree with that, uh, looking at these passages over and over again. And last week, we, I mean, I, I will say that on at the start, what my intention was to do was to kind of look globally at verses 12 through 21 and just kind of give a bird's eye view of the whole passage and it was about last Thursday where I decided you know I think maybe we ought to just go ahead and just take these a couple verses at a time I think that would be better because this is such an important passage of scripture and Paul's letter because the things that Paul has been saying in in chapter one through chapter four even through chapter five verses 1 to 11, find their basis in what, we're, in what we come to this morning. 
It's like Paul is saying, okay, I've said all these things. Now, here's the basis. Here's the foundation upon which all of this rests. So I think that uh, it, it, it certainly demands our, our close attention. Last week I began the message, and last week's message arguably was kind of dark. And again, I apologize, uh, ladies. I didn't plan that to be on Mother's Day. It was a really dark, gloomy message for Mother's Day. It's just, I, the, the text is it's what was next. It just happened to land that way. Um, but I introduced last week by bringing to our attention what all of us know, there's something wrong with this world. I mean, we hear it in all these songs. We say it to each other all the time. A lot of times we're thinking it when we're not saying it. What is wrong with this world? And the Apostle Paul gives us an analysis of what's wrong with this world, doesn't he? The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, there is this real historical event that took place, a real historic event that took place and the consequences of this real historic event was this plunging, humanity plunging into sin and darkness. And when we look at the world and we see all of these things that are wrong with the world, it should remind us that this world is really a realm of sin and death. That's what this world is. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through what? Through one man, through Adam. This is the historical event that he's making reference to. It's this event that's recorded for us in Genesis 3, where Adam rebels against God openly, rebels against the clear command that God has given him. So we are told that sin has come into the world through one man, through this rebellious act. And we're told as a consequence of that, death has come into this world. I, I get, I'll tell you, I love animals so much. Every time I drive up and down the road, um, how, can you drive anywhere without seeing a dead animal somewhere along the road? And every time I see that, I, over the last, I don't know, probably five years or so, when this really started to hit me, Every time you see that, it should be a reminder that we dwell in the realm of death. Could you imagine having been in heaven for three hours or three days and then coming back and getting in a car and driving down the road and seeing the sight of this death? It'd be horrific we'd be reminded immediately, whoa, this is that realm where sin and death reign. And that's what Paul's telling us. He says, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And last week I spent a lot of time on that. I won't spend as much time on this this week, but in terms of review, you remember I said that we could read if we just had verse 12 by itself, we could say, okay, I think I see what's going on here. Adam sinned, he rebelled against God, brought judgment upon himself, death enters as a result of him sinning, and uh, death spread to everyone because they followed in Adam's example. And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Have we follow, followed in Adam's example? Of course we have. There's nothing untrue about that. But is that what Paul's talking about? And I said, no, 
And I want to remind you that the answer is no. And we should realize something's up already because our English teachers taught us that sentences like these are incomplete. You notice this, it's like Paul, is, he's, he's sharing this sentence, you know, and he's, he, before he can even finish the sentence, he's saying, oh, wait, wait, wait a second, you're going to misunderstand. And he inserts verses 13 and 14 in there. That's what verses 13 and 14 are doing in there. He said, well, you're going to misunderstand me. You're going to think that everybody's following in Adam's example here. Let me qualify this. Verse 13, he says, well, sin was in the world before the law was given. What's he mean by that? What he means is there was lots of sinning going on before Moses gave his law. I don't know when, what year it was uh, when Adam sinned against the Lord. I don't know what the date was. I don't know how long ago that was. But I can say with reasonable uh, uh, certainty that Moses uh, existed about 1,500 years before Christ, approximately. Just approximately. So there's a huge time span between Adam and Moses. And Paul's pointing out that between that time frame, there was lots of sin in the world. And we have much of it recorded for us in the scriptures. We have uh, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, we have the story of, the, uh, of Noah and the destruction of the whole world uh, by way of a worldwide flood. We have the situation in Babylon. And, and then you, you go and you started with, with, with Abraham. We even see the sinning in the life of Abraham, if you will. We see sinning in the life of Lot. And you go through the patriarchal history all the way to, to Moses. And you, see, you can clearly see that sin was in the world before Moses gave the Ten Commandments and the rest of the, the, rest of the law. And Paul says in verse 13, but sin is not counted where there's no law. And we say, well, wait a second. Sin's not counted where there's no law. I used an example last week. It's a little bit of a sore example because of some of the developments that have been going on with our highways. I apologize. I don't want to bring back any of that. But a good example is let's suppose there were no speed limits on the road. Yeah, I know. I could have come up with a better one. There's no speed limits on the road. And you're going down the road and someone pulls you over and says, listen, you were speeding. And you say, well, what do you mean I was speeding? Well, you were going too fast. Well, how fast is too fast? I don't know, but you were going too fast. That's ridiculous. We couldn't be penalized for that, could we? And that's the point that Paul's making. That's the point that he's making. Now, if we're thinking this through, we're going to say, no, wait a second. If sin is not being punished, why all the death? And that's what Paul wants us to think. And Paul says, verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. What's he mean by that? Adam was given a command, a clear-cut command. And Adam rebelled against that clear-cut command. And that brought death. What is, what is Paul saying to us? He's saying to us that when Adam sinned, every one of us sinned with him. That's what he's saying. That Adam was our representative in the garden. And when he fell, we all fell. In theology, that's what we refer to as the fall. Uh, we, we also refer to this as original sin. Original sin is not Adam's first sin. It's the consequences of his sin. Now, 
there's another very important doctrine here. And when I say very important doctrine, I mean a heel worth dying on. A very important doctrine here. And it's, it's the doctrine of imputation. How many have heard of the word imputation? Some of us have never heard that word. What does imputation mean? Imputation means the crediting towards or the crediting uh, of something to someone. Uh, we do this in, in banking all the time. Uh, at, on payday, you get this little slip or perhaps your employer has your routing number. And what happens on payday is a certain amount of money is imputed to your account. Uh, and of course, we impute that money all over the place and it's gone, right? Um, this, is, uh, th this is the doctrine of imputation. What happens when Adam sins? When Adam sins, his sin is imputed to every one of us. It's credited to our account, if you will. And we fall. And then at the end of verse 14, and this sets us up for the verses we're going to look at this morning. Paul says something that's in light of what he's just said can sound almost sacrilegious. He says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. You know, in this context, it's, it's, almost, it's almost breathtaking that Paul would say that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Who is the one who was to come? The one who was to come is Christ. That Paul, having just, having just elaborated on what Adam has done, and then he would say that Adam is a type of Christ, almost sounds sacrilegious, doesn't it? And that's why we have verses 15, 16, and 17. It's almost like Paul says, oh, wow. Ah, uh, boy, I better qualify this. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says this phrase, the free gift is not like. You see that phrase? It's almost like, oh, wait a second. Okay, Adam's a type of Christ, and I'm going to get to fleshing that out. But before we do, I want to tell you, there's... Uh, certainly a difference between them. Let's get this out of the way first. There's a difference between them. He says the free gift is not like the trespass. Verse 16, he says it again. The free gift is not like the result. So what's Paul doing? Why is verses 15, 16, and 17 there? Because Paul's saying, wait a second. Wait a second. Uh, he, he, Adam and Christ aren't like each other in every way here. Uh, I'm going to get to how they're similar, but first... You know, let's put the brakes on this thing and let's take a look at how they're different. He says the free gift is not like the trespass. Now, this might be where we start scratching our heads and we say the free gift, the free gift. What's the free gift? Uh, what is the free gift that Paul's talking about? We may read down and get to verse 17 and, and there we see the free gift of righteousness almost in the very end. He says, the, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And we'll say, okay, well, the free gift is righteousness. And if you listen to sermons on this passage, that's how a lot of people land. They say, well, the free gift is righteousness. Others will say, well, um, look at chapter 6 and verse 23. Uh, For the wages of sin is death, but see the word free gift? The free gift of God is eternal life. And they'll say, well, it's eternal life. 
Or some will say, well, it's righteousness and eternal life. And I think you can tell by the way I'm talking that I take a slightly different position on this. I'll share with you what I think, and I've been convinced of this by Douglas Moo. Douglas Moo argues that the free gift is not really the, the, the result. It's not really righteousness, although righteousness is part of it. It's not really eternal life, although eternal life is part of it. The free gift is the activity of Christ Jesus. And I think he's right there because he says what's being contrasted here is the action of Adam. We have the action of Adam. The free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass is what? That's the action. That's the performance, if you will, of Adam. But the performance of Jesus is not like that. See, I think that the performance of Jesus brings to us righteousness. The performance of Jesus brings to us eternal life. But I think what Paul's talking about goes a little deeper than that, where what Paul is saying is saying, listen, okay, Adam is a type of Christ. And he no sooner says it, he's like, oh boy, wait a second. Now, there's some differences here. The performance of Christ is nothing like the performance of Adam. We need to understand. Does that seem to make sense? The performance of Christ is nothing like the performance of of Adam. Then he continues, for if many died through one man's trespass, you see there he's embracing what he's trying to show us that when Adam fell, we all fell. When Adam fell, we all fell. One man's trespass, many died. Then he says, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. Now, there's a lot here in two words, much more. What is Paul talking about? Much more. A couple of things. I want to make a couple of points here, and I'm going to show you a picture because they say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Sometimes you try to explain things and it's just easier to draw a diagram and see a diagram or see a photograph or see a picture. And God has given us a picture. We're going to look at that in a few minutes. But before that, What Paul is saying here is he's saying there's an idea of certainty that's here. It is certain that through one man's trespass, death is reigned. How certain can we be about that? How many do we have from Adam's generation alive with us here today? How many do we have from Moses' generation alive with us here today? And some of us might even ask, how many, do, how many from our great-grandparents' generation do we have with us here today? It is certain, it is so, so certain that in Adam's transgression, death is reigned. That is so certain. But what Paul wants us to see is that it is equally certain that by Christ's performance, grace will abound. Just as certain as death reigns in this fallen world, you can be that certain that because of Christ's performance, grace abounds. Let's get a picture of this. Keep your place here in Romans 5. And let's get a picture of this. And back to Revelation, which we read earlier. There's a wonderful picture here. And I'll share with you you know, Revelation is a book that one of these days we, we, need, we, need, to, we need to work through. We, we ignore it because of its 
it's, it's so much symbolism and there's some, such a diversity of understanding of this book. And, and we're actually, uh, the church is suffering so much from all of these wonderful and marvelous word pictures that we get in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, first of all, is meant to be seen. It's meant to be seen. These are word pictures. In chapter 4, which we read earlier, John, he sees in his vision the throne room of God. He sees God seated upon his throne. He sees these angelic beings proclaiming and worshiping, holy, holy is the Lord God. One who is to come. And verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. We see this tremendous worship that's taking place at the mouths of these angelic beings before the immediate presence of God who is seated on the throne. And then in chapter 5, John says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that is God himself, a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? In verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And John begins to weep. There's no one able to look in. And John begins to weep profusely. And then one of the elders says to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took who is, by the way, who is the lamb? Of course, the lamb is Christ Jesus. He is the lamb of God who takes the sins away of the world. And Jesus comes and takes the scroll from the right hand of, of God who was seated on the throne. And when he takes the scrolls, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and they begin praising. Verse nine, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now in verse, in chapter six, beginning with verse one, we have the opening of these seals. And uh, Jesus opens the first of the seven seals and one of the four living creatures says with a voice like thunder, come. Verse 2, chapter 6. I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. Uh, let, me, let me share with you how I understand these. I understand uh, this to be the first cycle of seven cycles of judgment. It's the first cycle of seven cycles of judgment. Each of these seven cycles of judgment pertain to the same event. They lead up to the coming of Christ. Each one does. Why do we have seven of them then? Because in each one, we're given a different glimpse. We see the same thing from a different vantage point, if you will. Now, not everybody uh, interprets the book of Revelation that way. And I'm going to be far from being dogmatic. Uh, that is the interpretation that I take because that's the one that I have been most convinced of, of all the ones that I have read. And what I'm going to share with you this morning does not hinge on that point anyway. But I think you'll find a lot of comfort 
uh, in it nevertheless. The first seal is open. Verse 2, Behold, out comes a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. This is the first act of judgment in this cycle of judgment, if you will. Now, some interpret this as being the spreading of the gospel. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that that's, the, that that's true because there are four horses that come out and the other three horses very clearly are, are, are bearing judgment. I, I think what's going on here, especially in light of the context, who, who is the world's superpower at the time of the writing of this, uh, of this book? It is Rome. What has Rome done? They've conquered the world. Are they the first ones who have conquered the known world? No, they're not the first. Uh, many had conquered the known world before them. You know, we can think of Assyria, we can think of Babylon, we can think of Medo-Persia, we can think of Greece. Then along comes Rome. And what's been happening ever since? Nations have been trying to conquer the world. That's what's been going on. And I see this as being the church age. What should we expect during this time before the second coming of Jesus? Nations trying to conquer the world. That's how I understand this. When we get to verse 3, we see a second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, that men should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, a lot of times we'll read this and we'll think, just before Jesus is coming, Okay, this is what it's going to be like everywhere. Uh, perhaps that is the case. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that in, in, in any way. But the way I see this is this is already happening in various places all over the place. We're seeing it happen in our own country more and more often. It, it's almost routine now for us to hear about a shooting taking place somewhere. For what reason? It's like pieces being removed. For what reason? What, what prompts somebody to go into a McDonald's and open fire on everybody who's there? Why are we going through metal detectors everywhere we go? Pieces being removed. And God's providence, it's, it's happening in various places. It's not as bad as it could be, but it is bad. We look at verse 5. When, I opened, when he opened the third seal... I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, and this is really, this is really, what is up with this? A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. I had a young man ask me about that one time when I was doing ministry out at Columbiana County Jail. He says, I have a question for you. What is up with a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and uh, uh, don't harm the oil and the wine? What is up with that? Uh, it's an it's, it's a emblem of poverty. It's an emblem of poverty. A denarius is a day's wage. How many would be happy if you worked all day, probably 12 or maybe even 14 or 16 hours? And you made just enough to go out and buy a quart of barley. It's payday, sweetie. The eagle's flying. Barley was very important to exist. And uh, 
wheat was very important. Barley was the food of the poor. Barley wasn't as high quality. Bar, you know, barley's kind of your generic, if you will, maybe even a little worse than that. So a day's wages and all we got either is one quart of wheat or we've got three quarts of barley, but it's not extreme poverty because um, the angels told not to harm the oil and the wine. If the oil and wine was taken away, well, then would, that would be very bad. Now, what have we had with us? What do we have with us? We have extreme poverty with us. And Jesus even says, listen, the poor you will always have with you. All of these ideas to alleviate poverty. Should we aid and assist poverty? Yes. Are we going to alleviate poverty? No. And I would say it's because of this reason. It's because of this reason, not until Jesus returns. So we have poverty. Verse 7, I opened the fourth seal and I heard a voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider, the rider's name was Death and Hades. And... Uh, they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And we have that going on too, don't we? A bull eye and all of these various things. Once in a while, the Lord and his grace will give us, will give us cures for this, but then we just move to the next one. AIDS, Alzheimer's, all of these things that we have going on. I, I submit that this is all part of the church age here that could indeed probably will get much worse right before the second coming of Jesus. Then verse nine, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Here we have the voice of the martyrs. The voice of the martyrs. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood and those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And then in verse 12, the sixth seal is open and this is very clearly uh, the return of Christ. It's very clearly the return of Christ. We'll read it real fast. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun become black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne. You see, they're seeing him. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand the second, the second coming of Christ, the return of judgment? And then after this, chapter 7, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. In other words, it's a hold it, stop. We have this, this interlude, if you will, and regardless of whether you follow my interpretation of this or not, this point doesn't hinge uh, on the details of what I've been sharing with you. Uh, I think regardless of what your perspective is, you can still glean from this. Look at verse 9 of chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold a great one, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And where are they standing? 
They are standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And what are they clothed in? White robes. With palm branches in their hands. That's a signal of victory. Palm branches. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped. What's going on here? We see the salvation. We see a picture of grace, back to Romans 5.15, of grace abounding. John Piper in his sermon on chapter 5, verses 15 to 17 of Romans. He says that, and let's go back there for a moment. He says this, and let me read the verse again to you, just get your mind back on it. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He said, it's not like this. We might read it this way. This is what Piper says. He says, we might read it and we say, okay, well, the act of Adam is like a minus 10. And then the act of Jesus is like a plus 10. So that what happens is we end up with everything being reset to zero. Where uh, Adam's act is being reversed by Christ Jesus. Well, no. No. No, Piper goes on to say, no, it's, it's probably more like, okay, Adam's act is a minus 10, but Christ's act is a plus 1 million because it abounds so much more. And I think it's easy for us. We can, we can think this and we can think, well, you know, Jesus, he reverses what Adam has done. But, and, and is that true? That is certainly true. But what Jesus does is so much more than that. And the picture that we get in the book of Revelation reveals that, doesn't it? It's a word picture. What is this multitude of nations, this multitude of people doing there? They're in the immediate presence of God. Why? Because they have peace with God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Look back to chapter 5 in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. You see, this thing isn't just reset to zero. We now have peace. But it even gets better than that. The multitude in Revelation chapter 7, standing before God, they have also what? They have access. They have access to God. They're able to stand. Why? They're completely white. They're clothed in white. They're clothed in the very righteousness of Christ Jesus here. How can that be? Imputation. Imputation. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to all of us because Adam represented us in the garden. Christ represents us at Gethsemane, the garden. Christ represents us at the cross. Christ is raised on the third day and goes into the very immediate, oh, the holy of holies, the real holy of holies, which is not a, 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 a copy of the original, but the original itself. And when he goes in there, he goes in there and represents us. And that perfect righteousness is imputed 
to us. And that's the snapshot that we get, regardless of whether you follow all the details of the way I understand Revelation. And you don't have to. Uh, I'm not dogmatic about it. But we should be really clear on the picture we get in Revelation 7, shouldn't we? It's a picture of where we're going. I think if we were to if we were to get the picture of all of these people and we were to continually zoom in and look at all of the faces and continually to zoom in and look at all the faces, look all of the faces, all of a sudden, you know, I think I recognize someone here. I think I recognize someone. I think it looks like Becca. Come to think of it, there's Laura. There's Patty. See where we're going? It's tremendous. Verse 15. The free gift. Oh, Adam's a type of the one to come, but hey, 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 wait a second. His performance is nothing like Christ's performance. Adam's performance is nothing like Christ's performance. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result either of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. That's easy enough for us to see, although it's hard for us to to believe because we live in a time where we think we're entitled to salvation. Everyone thinks they're entitled to salvation. We got it completely backwards of the Apostle Paul. We We don't think any of us deserves judgment. We think we all uh, deserve salvation, but Paul begs to differ with him. He says, you got this exactly backwards. You all j- deserve judgment. Nobody deserves salvation. But I think even as twisted as we are today, we still say, well, this, this rebellion does deserve condemnation. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the staggering thing to us is what comes next. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Now, what's what's that mean? Let's go back to our word picture in Revelation 7 and Revelation 7. Let's go back to the picture we have that we were zooming in on. And we were looking at some of the people we recognize that are in that picture before the Lamb of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. How many sins have been committed by this group of people? How many sins were committed by one single person in this group? How many sins have I committed? How many sins have you committed? They're beyond our counting, aren't they? Adam rebels one time. And following that, condemnation. That makes sense to us. But after all this sinning that's been going on and going on and going on and going on and going on, grace abounds. That's actually staggering, isn't it? Would we be willing to put up with each other that long? What is God doing in verse 16? He is showing us how 
tremendously gracious he is. Why do we need to see that? Oh, there's lots of reasons. I'll just give you one. When we think we've blown it so bad that Jesus would never like want anything to do with us anymore. Well, then there's verse 16, isn't there? And there's Revelation 7. Isn't that tremendous? How often do we feel that way? Our flesh accuses us, the world accuses us, the devil accuses us constantly. It's one of his favorite things to do. In fact, one of the best titles and descriptors for, for, for the devil himself is the accuser. Verse 17, and we'll wrap up. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Okay, what is that all about? Well, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness in life uh, through the one man, Jesus Christ. If we read that real quickly, like I just did, here's what I think happens to our minds very easily. When we read, because of one man's trespass, death reigned, that gets chalked up on a little peg in our mind. So as we continue reading, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness uh, reign in life. We think, okay, death reigns now. Life is going to reign then, right? When we read it really quickly. And I think we can even read it slowly several times and we still think that's what it says because I think in our minds, our minds are ready for this, this contrast between death and life. Okay, death reigns in this world through Adam. Christ, life reigns, right? But that's not what it says. Look at it closely. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Okay, got that. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign. Who is the subject of reign? The subject of reign are those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Who is reigning? Everyone who is in Christ. Hold your place there. Let's just go back to Revelation again, just for a moment. Revelation 6. You'll notice that when I was reading in verse 6, I stopped short of verse 10. I did that for this reason. The angelic host is singing... In verse 9 of Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation 5, not 6. And they say, Worthy are you, worthy is the Lamb to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall what? They shall reign. Do you understand that? You can't hardly go through a, a checkout line in anywhere and not see something about Prince William and, and Kate Middleton, right? And I'm not criticizing that. They're royalty. It's a prince and princess. They're royalty. But their royalty is passing. 
their earthly royalty. Their, their royalty of a kingdom that's passing. It's here now, but it's going to be gone one of these days. If you're in Christ Jesus, who is your father? He's the sovereign king of the universe. And if you've been born to the sovereign king of the universe, what does that make you? It makes you royalty. I, I, I love this application. Others have used this application. I love this application. Husbands, when you look at your wives, do you realize that you're looking at a princess? Now, some of you are like, hmm, that sounds wonderful. Oh, you could have done this first. This would have been a good point. And, and you could have elaborated on it a little bit. I'll try to remember to bring it up in review. But ladies, those of you who are married, look at your husbands. If they're in Christ, they're a prince. Isn't that wonderful? One last point. Notice the word receive in verse 17. I bring this up to you and I won't spend much time on it because a lot of time should be spent on it, but I think that, I think we get this. Someone could read verses 15, 16 and say, you know what? Look what Paul's doing here. When Adam sinned, all sinned in him. And that means everyone. Verse 15, for if many died through one man's trespass, who are the many here? Every single human being. And I say, okay, got that. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus, abound for what? Many. And people will take this verse and they'll say, this teaches universalism. Everybody relax. You see, the many in the first part of the verse is all human beings. So the many in the second part of the verse should be all human beings. Jesus has come and he's come to save everybody. And boy, what an attractive sentiment that is, isn't it? The only problem is, does that stand up under the scrutiny of the teaching of the word of God? And the answer is no, it doesn't even stand up to the scrutiny of the immediate context. In verse 17, Paul says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those... Who receive. See, there's a qualification here. For those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through Christ Jesus. So none of this is going to do us any good. We, there's an historical event that has taken place. And at that historical event in the Garden of Eden, we all fell. And unless we take Christ Jesus with the hands of faith, these plagues that are described in the book of Revelation are what we get to look forward to for the rest of eternity. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ Jesus has come and he has ushered in a new realm. And it's a realm of eternal life and reigning with him in concert in the new heavens and the new earth. And the only way to get in the only way to get in is by faith and trusting in Him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this difficult but 
extraordinary passage of Scripture. And Father, I pray that, Lord, you'll bless us through the difficulty of it all, that, Father, you'll give us clear understanding of it, that, Father, not only would we understand it, but we would trust in it, and, and that we would glory in it, that we would bask in it. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.